Welcome to this special edition of In Conversation with David Frum. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Earlier this week, I was able to interview David live in front of an audience at the Gardner Museum in downtown Toronto. It included many of our valued Hub fellows. Thank you, those of you who attended. I really enjoyed meeting each and every one of you personally. David's conversation with me focused on a whole bunch of fascinating issues. We touched on what we've learned about Canada since the horrific attacks of October 7th on Israel. How is our culture and identity being shaken by this war? We also went deep into U.S. politics. Imagine that a year from now, we will have had the U.S. presidential election. What does David Frum think about Trump's prospects? Will Biden make it to the finish line next November next voice you'll hear is me kicking off a conversation live and in person with Hub contributor David Frum. David, just to thank you for being here in Toronto. Um, well, can I interrupt you to say yeah. my thanks? The last time you and I did an event together in public was in 2018 for the Steve Bannon uh, debate, where I had to cross a gauntlet of protesters, one of whom punched a police officer. So thank you all for the welcome. <laughs> no one punched a cop, I, I trust. And, and, uh, and I thank the Hub. I mean, I've been uh, now almost two years a contributor. Um, it is an extraordinary platform where uh, Sean Spear and I get every two weeks to discuss things in a, in a way that social media is designed to thwart. Uh, but we endeavor to do it. And thanks to the Hub, we are able to do it. And I hope you all watch. And I, I hope you find the conversations of value. We certainly do, and you can get that at uh, www.thehub.ca. Um, David, one of the things we talked about earlier today uh, was, and this is what I enjoy about you, you acknowledge that you're not a military expert, uh, you're not a deep expert on the Middle East, uh, you know what you know. Uh, so tonight we're going to focus that conversation on what you know, so I want to talk a bit about how the events of October 7th have in your view, impacted Canada and the United States, and then find some time to talk about U.S. politics. I mean, it's amazing to think that a year from now, we will have a president of the United States. Who will that be? Joe Biden, Donald Trump, somebody else. We have a unique voice here, a person who's thought long and deep about U.S. politics, its texture, its trajectory. So let's save some time for that. But David, I want to begin with just a simple question. What do you think we've learned about Canada yeah. since October 7th? Um, thank you. I think Canada faces a, a deep internal security problem that Canada is not prepared not only to cope with, but even to think seriously about. Uh, Canada does not have a, anymore a substantial national security culture. Um, all problems of security are seen through domestic political prisms. And, and there are so many examples of this. Uh, espionage from the People's Republic of China, um, an assassination by a foreign government on Canadian soil of a Canadian passport holder. All of these things were interpreted through the prism of um, immediate political needs for one political party or another, um, without the apparatus and the method to think about them from a truly national point of view. And we have seen that very much since October 7th. Um, Canada is an amazing immigration success story. Uh, and when you pull people from all over the world, one of the things that um, you owe them is an, a clear message about what the rules of engagement on this new land are going to be. There are things that, um, there are things that if you like them, they were welcome in your old place, but you can't do them in the new place. Um, there, are things, there are many benefits to life in the new place, but the new place has, it, has its customs and its culture and its, its rules, and these are the things that have to be done. And, and although you try to communicate that in the nicest possible way, there also is an enforcement arm where you, that you have uh, apparatus that is capable of detecting radical and potentially violent activity, and um, either thwarting it or punishing it. And that has been sorely missing. And uh, the lack of clarity... Um, I'm not going to criticize what um, the Canadian government has said about events in the Middle East, but the lack of clarity about events in Canada and expectations in Canada uh, is, is really alarming. Those expectations need to be clear and they need to be backed up by an apparatus with the skill, the technology, and the legal power to protect Canadians from extremism and potential violence at home. David, what do you think, though, since October 7th, we've learned about ourselves in terms of our national culture? 
Where are we at at this moment in Canada as we're seeing acts of anti-Semitism across this city? Uh, you and I earlier tonight had the opportunity to meet with Heather Reisman, who was the subject of one of these attacks at our store, just literally down the street from us. What does this say about Canadian culture? Is this a, a blip, a moment, it will pass? Or is it revealing something that demands more attention, more debate, and more focus? I think it reveals that Canada is in the grips of an ideology uh, that is very dangerous to the health and safety of, of Canadians. If it's true that people who identify as indigenous have the right to murder people whom they identify as settlers, that is a principle with a lot of bite, not just in Israel. Um, and if uh, you have systems of a belief that are defenseless to explain why that is wrong and why the whole concept of indigeneity is meaningless um, and why the whole concept of settlership is equally meaningless. If, you, if a country like Canada can't explain that, then a country like Canada lacks the wherewithal for an intellectual self-defense. And ca Canada has been on a slope for some time that makes it very difficult for Canadians to say, I'm proud of this country's history. Um, it is blemished, as every country's history is, but less blemished than just about anybody's. Um, and the blemishes, there is a process for correcting them, and Canadians need to feel pride, and Canadians need to not only feel it, but to assert it. And, and if you discover their fellow citizens who, who don't feel that same pride, uh, the majority who do feel it uh, ha should have ways and arguments that can, can say, in a forthright way, you are wrong. I mean, it's a free country. You can have that view. Obviously, no one's going to prevent you from having the view. But at the same time, the majority that have the view of pride and affirmation are not going to be bashful. And uh, if a government of the day says it's going to lower the Canadian flag for a political reason, not because some great Canadian has died and you're mourning together, but to, but to as an accusation, that, that's just not an acceptable way for any government ever to behave. David, what are the cumulative effects of that over time? What does that do to the supposed bonds of mutualism, reciprocity, our sense of respect, decency, and civility towards each other? Well, on this, I am not a pessimist. Um, I think the greatest superpower of democracy is the power of self-correction. Um, that while people retain the ability to speak freely, um, and both from a legal point of view, but also a social and cultural point of view. And sometimes, sometimes um, the bounds of the free speech that people allow themselves are narrower than the bounds of free speech that the law allows them. And, and we should all be asking ourselves always, I mean, obviously you don't want to be a jerk and say things to offend people gratuitously. Um, I love the, uh, I, I love the um, statement, the, the, the observation that is attributed to the English sometimes that a gentleman is someone who never gives offense unintentionally. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, so sometimes, so you, you need to weigh it and say, why am I saying what I'm saying? Is, is this considered? But, um, but democracies have this power for self-correction. And I, what I'm hopeful of and always ready to believe is that that power of self-correction is about to ignite. And at exactly the moment when you think it's doomed, that's the moment when it, when it is igniting. I hope. I trust. It's kind of darkest before the dawn. Um, does this happen in... Do you find amongst the citizens of democracies, is this something from the bottom up? Is, it, is there a role for the state to play here? You've talked about the absence of a kind of national security kind of consciousness in yeah. Canada. That would suggest that there is a dereliction of duty in the context of the state. Well, I, I think that there are things that the state really has to do. I mean, if it's true, for example, that the streets of a capital city can be blocked for weeks because no one has figured out what is the job of the city cops and what is the job of the provincial cops and what is the job of the federal cops and what is the job of, of the army. I mean, that is, that is something that, you are, that a government is supposed to war game over and over and over again and to have a plan for every kind of contingency, natural disasters, uh, civil disorder. You need to be ready for that. And everyone needs to know this is what the city cops do, this is what the provincial cops do. Um, and it's not an excuse to say, oh, we, we weren't sure whose job it was. Well, why weren't you sure? You should know that. Um, and there should be real systems of inquiry that are aimed not at sort of absolving people, but at identifying the failures in institutions that made it possible to close down a national capital for, for day, days on end. Um, so that's a, a role of the national government. Correcting the nation's culture is not a role. It, it, and it's not that it's dangerous for government to try, although it is. It's also, it's doomed. It's not, that's not where the, the action happens. It moves from the society to the state. 
that kind of behavior. It moves from society to the state. And that's what we're all doing tonight. That's what, um, that, that I think may be some of the pushback that is, you have been seeing. You know, um, there's a common internet uh, joke about, uh, I, I never thought the leopards would eat my face, said the lady who voted for the leopards eating people's faces party. Um, so uh, what, what we have seen is in, in Canada for, and in the United States too, for a long time there's been a culture where people say things that other people take offense to, and then there's this massive campaign of suppression, not by the government, but by social uh, society, to hold them, give them economic consequences and social consequences, direct their careers. So what has happened since October 7th is because the majority of Canadians and the huge majority of Americans are abhor Hamas terrorism, that the people who have been seen to make excuses for that are suddenly discovering they voted for the leopards e eating people's faces party, and now the leopards are on the prowl and they're being devoured too. They're also discovering some of the, the limits. So we're seeing a kind of social pushback where people are gonna say, you know, you can't, uh, uh, we disapprove of people who take the public dime endorsing terrorism on the public dime, of people who have, who have honored positions of instruction and teaching, uh, teaching contempt for human life and gleeful disregard for the suffering of families that have uh, loved ones in captivity. And, and that is making itself felt. I'm hoping that, 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 that this can be the beginning of a, of a debate. And again, I'm not talking exactly about state action. The state action is for providing people's physical security but making sure that you live in a country that knows to be proud of itself, to stand for decent values, um, and people are not going to be intimidated and bullied out of standing for those things. That's the work of all of us acting as individuals and as a community. You write for The Atlantic, so you're part of the media. You think about the media. What is your explanation for these constant equivalencies that are drawn between Hamas and Israel? Uh, through, not, not just in the early stages of this war, They're, we're now in week eight or nine, and they, they continue to perpetuate themselves in the media narratives of some of what many of us would consider, I consider, you know, our most august and respected media organizations, yeah. the BBC, the New York Times, on and on and on. Well, it's very important when you think about problems in the media, always remember that the most important media company in the world by far is Facebook. And now, nowadays, the second most important is probably TikTok. Um, and the, the New York Times and the BBC, they are important to the extent that they are suppliers of content uh, to Facebook and TikTok. But I, I think those of us of a certain age and certain habits do tend to think that the, um, do tend to be blind to how most people who are most impressionable to media information actually, what media they consume and how they consume it. So whenever anybody says, a sentence with the word media in it. Make a mental note, does this apply to Facebook and TikTok? If not, it's not a very helpful sentence. Um, if, if you're just complaining about the New York Times, which is a great newspaper with many, many faults, um, if I can use slightly salty language, one of our, we have a series of instructions at the Atlantic about our editorial choices of language, and one of our rules is don't use uh, language, uh, offensive language, unnecessarily. But if, you, if your story really needs the word fucking in it, go ahead, because we're not the fucking New York Times. <laughs> uh, so, so they have all kinds of quirks and ticks and bad habits. They have some great habits, too. I mean, they are a great newspaper, and the Washington Post is a great newspaper. Um, uh, the BBC, I think, has a problem that is much more specific which is they, get, they, are, they are so much a global company and so many of their people are, are, are non-British citizens, uh, connected and caught up in causes all over the world. They communicate in so many languages. And so some of these questions uh, of how, does, how do um, people from different backgrounds work out common standards of ethical behavior, they, they, those questions present themselves very acutely in London and very acutely inside the BBC building. Many people have encouraged us to think about this conflict in, in a civilizational context of uh, the West, uh, its enlightened values, uh, the freedom, the open, openness, the tolerance, and yes, the problems that contemporary Israel faces, they are many. How do you see this? Do you, do you hew to that civilizational analysis of Israel versus Hamas, or is there a different way to frame what these two entities are and how we should understand them. I, I would strongly caution against that view. Um, I, I think it is, it is true that the values that, we, that probably everybody in this room most cherishes happened 
as a matter of historical record, to originate in Northwestern Europe and spread from there through much of the rest of the world. So to that extent, there is a geographical story. But these values are accessible, I believe, to people all over the world. And, and in fact, they are often most cherished by people in the places who are most geographically remote from the place where they originated. And um, I don't think, I, I think there's, when people talk about this as a matter of Western versus some other values, that, that is both chauvinistic in a way that I find unappealing, but it's also self-limiting. Uh, because it means, it, it means hoarding something that is a gift to the world. Um, and I, I just think of how many people that you, you see and hear from, if you, if you keep your ears open, who say, I live in a very far away place, but I believe in human dignity. I believe in the equality of men and women. I believe in religious freedom. Um, I believe in the, uh, the emancipatory power of technology. I believe that markets work. I believe that, that trading is better between nations is better than the attempt to dominate. I believe all of those things. I, I wasn't, I, you know, I don't share so much DNA with the first person to have that view, but I, I share my human spirit with the most recent people to have that view. Um, and so, I mean, the, I think we, um, and nor do I think that, that the countries where people have ethnic and um, cultural bonds to the originators, of the, are they immune? Um, that we have seen that there are plenty of people uh, in countries that are called Western who abhor those values, who reject them, who are some of the most dangerous opponents of them. Um, and anyway, the whole concept of what is the West, I mean, it, 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 uh, some, it, it shrinks and expands, and, and it, it's not a helpful way to think. I, I would strongly urge us to think of that there, it, we need a better, the problem is because, especially in the Canadian context, the word liberal has partisan and ideological overtones in a way that it shouldn't, but we need to think of that in the broadest sense of the world where it's something that, yes, it originated in Northwestern Europe, it is a gift to the planet, in the same way that, you know, uh, all those Chinese inventions of, the, of a thousand years ago, those were gifts to the planet. And you think, we think it pretty silly to talk about chi printing as Chinese culture, um, as, you know, money that isn't made out of metal as Chinese culture. That was a gift to the world. We all use it. Um, and in the same way, the ideas of, of religious freedom that started because of the experience of the religious wars in Western Europe, that's a gift to the world and we should all use it. And we, I hope that the time will soon come when we all do. Well said. Let's turn to the United States, which is a big part of your expertise, the books you've written, the writing that you're doing at The Atlantic. Um, how would you explain at this moment, David, the willingness for a large section of the U.S. voting public to not only consider but um, crave for a second Trump presidency, knowing and having seen everything that's gone before yeah. since 2016. What explains this cognitive seeming disjunction between reality yeah. and expectation and desire? Well, we have, we have seen in the 21st century, the rise of authoritarian, basically reactionary authoritarian movements all over the democratic world. Um, and uh, much has been written about the many causes, but I, I am struck again and again by the similarities, not the dissimilarities, between the politics of Germany and France and Spain and the United States and you know, Hungary and Poland. The, the, these questions present themselves, and obviously it's most dangerous to the world when these movements get a footing in the United States because of its global reach, but it's not that the Trump movement is so very different from the government that was just defeated in Poland. Um, there are a lot of simil similarities, and we see that the map of, of political appeal um, you know, you're all used to hearing the phrase red states and blue states, but that's deeply misleading um, because in every state, uh, what matters is not state versus state, but met, uh, metropolitan areas and knowledge centers, which have been beneficiaries of the new global economy, and then um, hinterlands and regional areas that have been not such, such beneficiaries in the global economy. So Charlotte, Charlotte looks like Austin, looks like Atlanta, looks like um, the Bay Area, uh, and uh, when you look at the amount, um, Texas is always thought of as the great red state, but, but in fact, every, virtually every city of any size in Texas has now a democratic city government um, with, and, and vote, voted both for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and for Biden in 2020. Um, and Texas, those kinds of elections in Texas are extremely close. And, it, and, the, and it's not unimaginable that the day will come when there is a, Demo when the Democrats take Texas, or certainly that they can win a governor's race in Texas. Um, so, this is true everywhere. It's just the stakes are so high in the United States. Um, and 
and also that the particular person who is the front man for this reactionary authoritarian movement in the United States is so himself not only personally irredeemable, but so dysfunctional. Um, because Trump is, he's a crook before he's a, dicta a would-be dictator, and he's a head case before he's a crook. Let's talk, though, a little bit more about what is animating and driving these Trump supporters. Um, exp if you can, explain the, is it a political pedigree? Is it a journey that they've been on through a series of Stations of the Cross that's led them to this epiphany of a, a resurrection, a return of the king for a second, um, a second administration? Is it something else? Is it something as simple as the U.S. economy, growing economic inequality, features that are embedded in American civic life that are driving people towards this outcome? Now, you need always to keep in mind that the hardcore Trump support is a minority of the Republican Party. That different people look at it in different ways, but it's a good guess that about 20% of the American electorate is strongly committed to Donald Trump. So his next asset, this is, is a, an artifact of the American political system, um, which is, uh, and I'm sure many of you have heard this phrase, negative partisanship. The phrase negative partisanship originated in a study uh, written by a political scientist named Alan Abramowitz in about 2005 or six. So through the 90s, uh, many political scientists noticed that there was decreasing numbers of Americans who identified as Democrats and Republicans, and increasing numbers of Americans who identified as independents. And a kind of careless assumption was made that independent meant centrist. And so a lot of things, were, if you go back and look at the journalism in the 1990s, you'll see a lot of rise, writing about the new centrist voter, the new independent voter. Those were always used interchangeably. And the idea, and Ross Perot is the harbinger of a new, of a weakening of the two-party system. So Abramowitz did an experiment where instead of asking which party do you identify with, he, he asked a, a representative group, is there one of the two parties that you really hate? And what he discovered is while decreasing numbers of Americans liked one or the other party, it was, there was no one who didn't have strong views about which party they hated more. And Abramowitz discovered that there was partisanship in the United States, it was negative. It was anti-Republican or anti-Democratic. And what that meant, as Donald Trump understood, is if you could capture one of the parties with a plurality of the vote within that party. You could then weaponize that party's hatred of the other party as a way to consolidate support that you don't really, that you didn't really have. So that people often look, say, what is it about this 46% that is so blindly committed to Donald Trump? Well, 46% are not blindly committed to Donald Trump. Maybe 20% are. Another 25, 26% are blindly opposed to whoever the Democrats nominate and will put up with whoever the Republicans nominate. And, if, and then find ways to persuade themselves that this guy isn't as bad as everybody else says he is. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. It's a great way to look at it. I learned something tonight. Thank you, David. Um, let's focus on to 2024. The anxiety, I'm sure I share it, many people in this room, is trying to figure out what is the likelihood of a Trump victory come this time next year. Do you place this as remote, as a coin toss? How would you help us try to gauge the risk associated with this? Well, let's think about it this way. Um, supposing there's a giant comet that is heading approximately in the direction of Earth. It might hit, it might miss by a few million miles. What would you spend to stop the comet? The answer is a lot, uh, because even if I'm reasonably confident it's probably going to miss, I don't want to take any chances. And I think that's the way you should think about this. I mean, a second Trump term, and we were talking about this at lunch, I, 
I get asked all the time, people call from specialized magazines or journals and say, what, is this, what could a specialized second Trump term mean for the energy industry? What could a second Trump term mean for um, this concern of that? You are underestimating the total chaos of a second Trump term. A second Trump term means that you're going to have, and I don't, by the way, let me stipulate, I need to say this early so I don't get people too excited. I don't believe it's going to happen. I think he is going to lose. But if should he win, what that means is you have a president of the United States who's involved in four criminal prosecutions, two federal and two state, and whose single overriding purpose in becoming president will be to blow up the legal system of the United States. And he's going to, uh, he's going to start on day one. The very first thing he's going to do is to try to stop the Department of Justice from the federal investigations. So that's Watergate. That's what Nixon did. Uh, like his, first two, his first day in office is doing Watergate all over again. Now, if now imagine that 100 attorneys at the Department of Justice resign and refuse to carry it out. What's his next plan? His next plan is to pardon himself for his uh, federal criminal prosecutions. Well, that's never been tried before, and it's almost certainly illegal. And it, it, I mean, if a president can pardon himself for a federal crime, that means the president of the United States can walk down the hall of the White House, shoot the first lady dead, and write himself a pardon. It means, just to make it even more breathtaking, if a president can pardon himself, the vice president can walk into the Oval Office, shoot the president dead, hastily scribble himself a pardon, and be in this, and now Congress might impeach him, but he can't be criminally prosecuted. These cannot be correct answers. These cannot be the right answers, but these are the kinds of things we're going to be talking about. And it's not going to stay in the halls of Congress and the green rooms of CNN. This is going to move into the streets. It's going to be like Tel Aviv, three months ago, every day in every American city. And the government is going to be paralyzed. There's going to be no national security apparatus. Um, there's going to be a complete collapse of civil military relations because Trump is going to, one of the things he wants to do is to use the military to crush protests. The military is not going to do it. He's got his friend Tommy Tuberville, the senator from Alabama, trying to keep hundreds of military slots open uh, into 2025 so Trump can appoint two or three hundred tame generals. The society is not going to put up with that. It's going to be chaos of a kind greater than the Great Depression, greater than the Civil War, because even in those extreme crises, executive authority at the center was clear. I mean, the United States faced horrific external or internal economic problems and national security problems with the secession of many states. But there was no question that when the president said or did something, what, how the internal federal government was going to work, in a second Trump term, all of those things would be up for grabs in ways never seen before. So it will be chaos. And, and what it means for the energy industry, I mean, like different bureaucracies, the FCC will, I'm sure, continue to issue rulings, passport office will continue to issue passports. Um, but there is not going to be, where it matters most, there's not going to be a government. One of the issues we saw in Israel was that the, the chaos in the country um, caused by Netanyahu's insistence on these judicial reforms emboldened yes. Israel's enemies. In that worst case scenario, do you see a similar calculation on the part of America's enemies if they see intense domestic chaos internally in the United States? Yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend that I can do risk analysis of the minds of the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians. But as you say, it's got to be tempting, right? I mean, if the United States is a paralyzed government, and it's not just a strike against the United States, but any, vul any vulnerable country that depends on American protection, um, what happens in a world in which the president is claiming the right to be utterly exempt from the law, is trying to shut down the justice system, uh, is trying to remake the military to crush his opponents, and hundreds of thousands of people are in the streets every day, and Congress is in turmoil, and there, there are no Senate-confirmed appointments to anything. Uh, you know, what does that mean for Estonia? Nothing good. Well, now that you've scared the pants off us, what is the, what's the likely scenario that you think that leads him to be defeated come next November? So, President Biden's polls are pretty bad. They look exactly like President Obama's polls at, in the second half of 2011, in his third year. Um, uh, and I think that, they, that the polls may say more about the life cycle of a presidency than they say about Biden. It's also true that just about every time that Americans have voted through the Trump years, they voted against Trump, um, and, and they voted against his party. So in 2018, um, 2018 is the highest non turnout in a non-presidential year 
in American history. If you look as a percentage of the electorate, it's the highest turnout in a non-presidential year since before the First World War. And of course, before the First World War, women didn't vote. Before the First World War, most black people couldn't vote. And of course, before the First World War, 18 to 21-year-olds vote. So if you look at, at participation not as a share of the electorate, but as a share of the population, of the, adult, of the population over 18, it is the largest democratic event in American history without a president on the ballot. And they came out and they massively repudiated the Trump presidency and delivered the House of Representatives uh, to Trump's opponents. Then Trump lo loses by 8 million votes. Now, the Electoral College is close, but in terms of the raw impact of the American people, um, there's, there have been six presidential elections since the year 2000, 12 major party candidates in those six. Of those 12, and if you stack them by share of the popular vote, Trump is second from the bottom and third from the bottom. Only poor John McCain running in the catastrophic year of 2008 did worse. Then comes, uh, so Trump, Trump 2020, he gets uh, this big popular repudiation. Um, then comes 2021 and the Republicans lose the Senate when they should have won it. Uh, they, they lost two seats in Georgia uh, because of Trump. Then comes 2022. Uh, now the Republicans do regain a non-functioning majority in the House of Representatives. They lose net one Senate seat, net two governorships, and most amazingly, they lose four state legislative chambers of the 99 state legislative chambers. And they do that because, both because of Trump's election denial and the abortion issue. Then comes 2023, when there are lots of little obscure elections all over the country, and again, the Democratic polling is bad, but wherever there's a stink of Trump, um, uh, the, the people who are associated with Trump lose. By the way, one of the things that's interesting about 2022 um, it's one of the states where that, that election was fought very hotly was Arizona. And there were lots of Trumpy Republicans, every one of whom lost. There was not one non-Trumpy Republican on the ballot in Arizona who was like the state comptroller. There was a traditional, money doesn't grow on trees, you know, kind of Republican. And, and he won because, the, yeah, money doesn't grow on trees. We need a guy to say that. Um, but all the Trumpy people all lost. So I, I just, I think people underestimate when the binary choices presented to them between uh, Trump and somebody else. I mean, there are all these polls that some friends of mine at a group called No Labels do where they ask people, um, do you want Trump, do you want Biden, or do you want a moderate third-party alternative? Well, that's like asking you, do you, for dinner, do you want pizza, do you want burgers, or do you want something else you'd like better? Oh, I think I'll go for the something else I'd like better. Um, but, that, but now we start putting content into the something else you like better, and you know, maybe I'll have the pizza. Um, uh, you, and uh, so I think that there are, when, as the choice becomes binary, the anti-Trump impulse in the American public will assert itself for all of Biden's many difficulties. By the way, people are comparing Biden to um, other presidents at other, you know, times, uh, at other times, but if you compare Biden's performance to that of just about any incumbent in any of the G7 countries, it turns out you say, hey, the country with the best performing economy in the G7 in, the, in this disinflationary period also has the least unpopular power holder. Biden's numbers, although they don't look as, as, as good as they might, look better than Sunak's or Justin Trudeau's or Macron's because we all are in the same economic boat, squeezing out the inflation from the um, money creation of COVID. Uh, uh, everywhere interest rates are up, nobody likes it, of course, uh, but the American economy is at least producing jobs through all of this, and the result is that Biden's numbers look not as good as you know, uh, somebody at the top of an economic boom, but they look a lot better than any other major economy leaders, leaders do. In an America after Trump, does the swamp fever break within the Republican Party, do you think? Is there a, re a refashioning, a resetting of the center-right in America, or is there a danger, David, that this is really about a movement, not a man, yeah. and there will be another standard-bearer who emerges, who espouses the same types of views, the same kind of, in your view, antithetical notions about statehood and America's role in the world and the responsibility of the presidency. Yeah, um, I have to be careful with this because I have a long track record of being wrong on this very specific question. Uh, wrong largely because of wishful thinking. So I have been hoping for a, a remade and remodernized Republican Party since the Tea Party years. I, and I wrote books about how they could do it. I keep thinking, okay, they're gonna lose in 2012 and then they'll come to their senses. And I, increasingly, I feel like, like some wistful suitor who keeps thinking that his ex-girlfriend will return to him. Okay, the, okay, not that guy, but after the next guy breaks her heart, then she'll come back to me. And, and, and she's made it very clear, you know, 
however bad the succession of alternatives to you are, each and every one of them I prefer to you. Um, so, so my brand of conservatism, I don't know that it has much of a, a, a future. Um, so I, 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 but I, I do think we have to take seriously, if we look, compare the United States to other countries, that um, we may be moving away from an era when the politics of, were defined by your um, voters' relationship to the mechanics of economic production, when there was blue-collar versus white-collar, um, private sector versus public sector, and that's how the vote was arranged, and that was true, whether it was labor versus conservative in the UK or Republican versus Democrat, Canada a little bit more complicated, but still basically the same idea, farm versus city. And, and now we're moving into a, a politics of identity, um, and uh, that people in the politics of identity, because these politics are so existential, are more open to anti-democratic alternatives than they were in the days when the issue was labor versus management, blue collar versus white collar, private sector versus public sector. So I, I hope I'm agnostic on that possibility. What I can say is that the, the task of developing a center-right conservatism that can govern is not a task to give up on. Even what, however one predicts the game will go, you still have to keep working on it because it's something that has to happen. Countries have to be governed. Markets are important. Um, the uh, restraint of government under systems of law is important. The center-right has things to offer, and, um, and we have to find ways to articulate that, even in the context of weakening uh, the, the primacy of these identity issues and weakening attachments to democratic procedures on apparently large parts of the public in all the democratic countries. Now, I promised before we go to questions, again, if you have a question, please uh, send us an email. It'll come up to me on stage here, question at salonspeakers.com. But just to try to push you into the Middle East just at the end here, David, if you were think, thinking of having this talk from us with us a year from now, where do you think the conflict, the war between Hamas and Israel would be at? What would we be seeing in the Middle East, yeah. do you have, I know that's a tough question. I, I, you have to think into the future. Is this, in other words, is this a war that happens quickly? Is there something this, this that occurs after it? This is completely outside my expertise, and so yeah. I, I'm very reluctant to make any kind of prediction on that. But I, I think I can begin to see um, some political effects inside the, the countries where whose politics I do follow more closely. Say, um, look, uh, the con that this conflict, like Ukraine, has, has global implications that um, get converted into the partisan politics of each, of each country. Um, if Ukraine succeeds, that is an enormous blow to the anti-Ukraine, the Putinist forces that are present in almost every democratic country, and a tremendous um, surge of prestige to the anti-Putinist the, and the, the forces of, of, democ of democracy. Um, if uh, the Hamas versus Israel fight strengthens the political fringes, both far left and far right, um, and, uh, and put, pits the fringes against the center. I mean, that in the United States, uh, you see that you know, support for Israel stretches from the Nancy Pelosi's to the Mitt Romney's, and it is weakest beyond, once you go beyond Nancy Pelosi and beyond Mitt Romney. Um, and Ukraine, it's, it's even more extreme. So in all of these countries, you have these two great um, attention-demanding conflicts that remake politics by making the, the, the dispute between left and right less important than center versus extreme. There's a lot of effort by some Republican talkers in the United States to try to question what President Biden has done for Israel. And you'll, you'll hear this in like early morning hours on Fox News. And, and uh, I don't know that it's possible for any president to offer more support than what Biden has done. And meanwhile, that while the Speaker of the House claims to be a great friend of Israel's, he's been in that job now for how many weeks? And he's not even, and he, and there's still no bill to support and aid Israel and Ukraine. And the one bill they advanced to support Israel was one that can, had as its, uh, was laden with an attack on the IRS that was just a deal poisoner. Um, and it wasn't just that he wanted to cut the number of IRS agents, but he, it was, he had a gift to the Intuit software people, because one of the, the Biden people had put in a place a pilot program to, pre to create income tax forms that were pre-populated that most people who um, weren't running a business would be able to look at their, go, go online, look at their tax form, say, that looks about right, 
press go and file, which was a threat to Intuit as we know it. And back in May, Intuit's lobbyists called a summit in Washington and said, this must be stopped at all costs. Um, and uh, that was the first thing, the first bill by the new speaker was to destroy the pre-populated tax form at the behest of the Intuit lobby and, and in a bill which then was a poison pill for support for Israel. So um, there, are, there are certain voices within the Jewish community that are there to blur the difference between mainstream Democrats and these jerks who pull off the, uh, the posters. But I, I just think that doesn't stand, that what you see is the cent in, the, in the United States and Canada too, a little less, in Britain, uh, more than Canada, less than the United States, this, and in, uh, in Germany and France, the center is cohering on this issue. The fringes are against it. And it reminds us that in, when we get to conflicts that are a little less existential, that there is a meaningful democratic center that is under challenge from many directions, not just one. Well said. Let's uh, take some audience questions here. Uh, talking about the fringe, so to keep on that topic, um, what about these other candidates that have emerged? Uh, Jill Stein, uh, Robert Kennedy, Manchin. Yeah. Are, should people be watching these candidates to try to think that they could be consequential in how this election plays out? Or once again, can we just rule the third party candidates out and focus on the main race? You should understand what the who the third party candidates are and what they're for, that every one of those third candidates, and you, Cornell West is also to be mentioned there, right. um, is overwhelmingly funded by exclusively major Republican money. Hmm. Um, so what a lot of the, there are, basically there are big Republican donors who didn't like Trump, were hoping for DeSantis, thought, open to Scott, open to Haley, have, are now making their peace with uh, Trump and have much more realism than Trump. They, re they accept Trump is a 46, 47% of the vote candidate tops. Um, Biden, however, could be a 51% of the vote candidate. So if you can't, and you can't help Trump and he won't be helped, but what you can do is try to splinter. The Democratic coalition is always more unstable um, and fissile than the Republican coalition. So you can try to, sh sh if you can shave off a, a fraction of a point for one candidate, shave off, a, you know, uh, Cornell West will try to appeal to the far left on the Israel-Palestine issue. Um, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. will appeal, appeal to um, and the anti-vax movement, which has become an important um, a fact in, in all our countries. Um, and Joe Manchin may will try to appeal to the center and the center right. And with each of them, you can shave off just enough support from Biden that if you can drive him down to 48%, you can then hope that the Electoral College will do the rest. And I, I think that's what's going on here. But um, I, I don't think that you should see them as manifestations of the, the will of the great and good American people. These are all independent operators with their own agendas, but they're funded often by many of the same people. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, let's uh, ask about foreign election interference. There's a question here. You know, we saw that in 2016. It was l seemingly less of an issue in terms yeah. of uh, post-investigations in 2020. Yeah. This will be the first election where we'll start to see AI beginning to scale up and be increasingly used as a tool of uh, persuasion. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts here, David, about how important this could be? Well, foreign election interference used to be boutique, and now it's Walmart. Um, so it used to be the, the, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, and other actors would try opportunistically within pre-existing social media platforms. Now there's TikTok. TikTok is the largest scheme of organized election interference in the history of the world. Um, it's owned, I mean, it is literally owned by the Chinese state. Um, and so, I mean, the whole idea, that, I mean, it's hopelessly mom and pop that, to, you know, you're, the, the Russians with their Facebook operations, so they're, 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 they're hacking and leaking, that uh, what, is, what is happening, here, and the, the question that every society wants, should ask is, are you content to have young people, the people least connected to the political system, have as their most important, by far, source of information, um, this addictive product created by an adversarial foreign state? And if you're not, what are you going to do about it? Because that is going to be uh, on, and it's, it, it interferes in, it's a in source of interference in uh, all kinds of politics. Um, I, I think you may see the Russians try to do, and other people do, learn, repeat 2016. That was, that, that was one of those things where they hit a lucky strike that may not be replicable. But the TikTok problem is just hmm. enormous. And why do you think, David, TikTok continues to get a pass? I mean, there's been a few actions at state levels, but they seem marginal at the periphery. You're right, it's incredible. This yeah. is an algorithm that's effectively being programmed by the PRC to influence potentially millions of voters 
in ways that could be incredibly subtle, yet nonetheless incredibly important to the outcome of the election? Well, I think it's gotten a pass to date because it's a hard problem and there isn't a social consensus on what to do about it. Um, but I imagine and expect that that social consensus will begin to formulate. And there are, there are a number of ways uh, you, can, uh, you can imagine from less radical, maybe the answer is some kind of regulatory framework, which will take agreement between the United States and the European Union. Maybe the answer is um, some kind of forced um, divestment, where the owners of TikTok are told, if you want your company uh, to, if you want your product to continue to be sold, you have to form a proper company and float it on the New York Stock Exchange and be subject to those kinds of rules. Maybe it, and you can imagine going all the way to an outright ban, although that has many, uh, that's, that's a very hard, that's a, a, a big complex. So I think you're, it's not that they get a pass, it's that the, this conversation is just really getting going and this, uh, the latest war in the Middle East is, is really forcing the issue very much to the, the forward. We have a question here about uh, Donald Trump's legal travails. Um, is there a scenario where he goes to jail? And if so, does this happen in a way that's meaningful to the election and the timing around the election? And how would the Republican Party, do you think, institutionally respond yeah. to that? Well, I, the timeline, I think, looks sort of like this. The Republican race will be over for all practical purposes, probably by Valentine's Day. Uh, and it's very hard to see that any of these legal cases, beyond the one that has already uh, been decided on um, summary judgment in the, the civil case, hard to see any of them being adjudicated before February, in fact, impossible. And it's unlikely that any of them will be adjudicated before voting day. So um, my guess, and it's just a guess, is that this is an overhanging fact, but there is not a criminal sentence. And then we are in the scenario where if Trump loses, um, the, cr the criminal actions then just fall on him one after the other in 2025. Um, and if Trump wins, you're into the scenario I, I described. Um, the, civil, the, the, the civil fraud case, there may be, it may be that before the election day his company is dissolved and he's banned from business in New York. Um, so far that has not shown signs of having a lot of political impact. But it doesn't need to have a lot of political impact because just as um, the Republican strategy is to hope to shave off pieces of the Democratic coalition to drive Biden down to 48. If you take off, if these legal troubles take off even two or three points from Trump, they don't have to destroy, you don't have to reduce his vote to zero. Um, it, is, it is a weight on him that is going to be, I think, meaningful too. Question here about uh, mass shootings. They are one of the most uh, high profile and I think salient and tragic events that we see reported on out of America happening in America. Do they have resonance with voters in terms of this election? Is, there, is this an issue that could have an effect? If so, how would that effect play out? Yeah, well, I, I got mass shootings are uh, clearly on, on the rise. I see them as a form of parapolitical um, violence. That is, very few mass shooters have an expressed political view. And even those who do, the political point of view doesn't usually align with anybody's, it's, it's usually some weird medley of, of nut bar causes that, that, that um, come together in ways that are not completely individual or idiosyncratic, that, that, that things, things do tend to link up together. Um, the, the racism, but the mistrust of modern medicine, those go together for reasons that are, I, I can speculate about. Um, but there is clearly, there is, a, they catch an undercurrent of a certain kind of male grievance against the world. Um, that it is very much about sexual politics, again, in a parapolitical or sub-political sense. Um, and, I do, and I think we're not gonna have a real solution to the mass shooting problem uh, until you think about it that way. Now remember, most of the gun tragedies in the United States are not mass shootings. Um, there are more suicides and homicides, and there are in, innumerable accidents that leave people marred uh, and traumatized for life. Um, and, and of course, uh, and most of the killings um, are done with a handgun, not with, a, not with an AR-15, and they are done usually by people who know each other. Um, and uh, you're, and the, the handgun problem, I don't think there's any political will for. Uh, but this problem of this, this sub-terrorist, sub-political violence is something that um, needs really to, to be thought about. And, and it is connected, I think, in, in, in many ways that I, I can't quite articulate, but to the spread of social media. Mass shooters um, are in this for a set of ideas they learn on social media, and their goal is to get themselves 
a sick, demented, wicked form of social media clout. Just to wrap up, earlier today, um, you said something that resonated with me about thinking about generations and how we venerate certain generations for certain characteristics, but maybe we're, we lose some insight about ourselves yes. and our own agency in this moment. I wonder if you could wrap up this evening, because I think it's an important and somewhat enlightening message yes. to kind of leave us with in terms of how we think, all of us, about our individual roles at a moment of real kind of shared anxiety yeah. and turmoil and domestic strife and global conflict, um, share that message with us. Well, let me, I, I paraphrased a famous quotation, which I think I can now conjure up from uh, memory better than I could at lunch um, when I was thinking about other things. Um, but in, uh, there, you often hear the phrase greatest generation to refer to those who um, fought World War II. And I, I've always objected to this. And I'm going to now turn the microphone over to Abraham Lincoln to explain why it's wrong. Um, so it's November of 1864. Lincoln has, against the odds, been reelected. As, as late as September, it looked like he was lost, and with him, uh, the cause of a United, uh, United United States. But in September, Atlanta falls, and suddenly Lincoln is on his way to reelection. And in November of 1864, um, he, he wins, and he wins quite decisively. Uh, in those days, the custom was when a president won for a group of his supporters to um, form in Washington, D.C., and to come to the White House to serenade uh, the reelected president. There hadn't been a reelected president, I think, since Andrew Jackson's time. So the first reelection in a, a, basically what was a lifetime in those days. But a crowd of his supporters come to the White House to serenade Lincoln. There's no Truman balcony in those days, so he stepped on the second floor. He steps onto the first floor and receives the serenade. And you would forgive him for taking like a boastful victory. I mean, he's just won reelection. But being Lincoln, he instead gives them a passage of rather pessimistic philosophy. And what he says to them, he has, he has a long opening, and then he says, I think I can quote this, um, human nature will not change. What has happened thus will ever recur. In any future national trial, as in this, we shall have as many wise and foolish, as many brave and fearful, as many good and as many bad. So let us, let us learn to study the events of our time as, wisdom, as philosophy to learn wisdom from, and none of them as wrongs to be revenged. Wonderful way to end a wonderful evening on. Please, ladies and gentlemen, thank David Frum for his contributions tonight. Thank you, David. That was David Frum, live in conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub at the Gairdner Museum in downtown Toronto this past week. As I mentioned, we were able to host a number of Hub Fellows at our event. And if you'd like to become a Hub Fellow, please go to our website, www.thehub.ca. Fellows get all kinds of great perks and benefits, but I think one of the best of them is invitations to all of the Hub's in-person live events that we do throughout the year, including complimentary tickets often to the monk debates that I moderate. So if you're interested in supporting the Hub, it's a charitable contribution. We would really appreciate you considering becoming a Hub Fellow and coming out to some of the events that we'll be having in 2024. Thanks again for considering this opportunity and for tuning in to this edition of In Conversation with David Frum on the Hub Podcast feed. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. Talk to you soon.